This is the Vance Crow Podcast. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is a man named Dr. Alan Sofer. Dr. Sofer is a cardiologist here in the city of St. Louis, and he's been in the field for more than 30 years. Now, what you'll find out very quickly is that Dr. Sofer is really soft-spoken and introspective. The thoughts that he has about his career and what it's been like to work in the medical field for more than 30 years are really quite profound. And I'm glad that he was willing to come and sit down and talk with me because Alan's actually a really quiet guy. This interview, I got to ask really deeply probing questions. And when I go back and look at the interview, I wonder, man, did I make him uncomfortable by asking him that? But I saw this as a rare opportunity to be able to ask someone questions that most of us never get close enough to anyone to be able to ask, including if you're a heart doctor, the very thing that symbolizes life, and you're sitting across from patients that are now learning that they may not have much time left to live, how do you respond to that? How do you react? How do you behave to help them come to terms with the future that doesn't seem like it's going to go on much longer? This was a really interesting interview, and uh, at times, I kind of felt like I wish I had better interviewing skills to be able to draw more out of Alan. But what you'll hear in this interview are some really deep thoughts about what is it like to go from being a person training to be a doctor to actually becoming one? What has the medical field learned about what actually causes heart attacks? And what are the things that cause people to die from uh, cardiovascular disease? There's a lot of stuff that I learned during this interview, and I find it to be really interesting to go back and listen to. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I was greatly honored that Dr. Sofer came by, and I think it'll be time well used for you. So enjoy. I'm sitting here with Alan Sofer, who is a cardiologist. Your family is deeply into philanthropy here in St. Louis, and you and I have become friends over the last, I think, year and a half, two years? That's right. And uh, so, welcome. Thank you for Thank stopping you. by. Thanks for being here. So, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this conversation well in advance of inviting you to be on the podcast. And then when I was uh, making the, the ask, the invitation, about what we would talk about. And I've actually stressed about this quite a bit because um, from our interactions, I know you were very introspective, uh, pretty quiet, uh, if not shy kind of person. And so I was thinking, what are the questions you could ask? And it dawned on me, I don't think I've ever actually spoken with a cardiologist before. I, I know what I've seen on TV and I know that a cardiologist works with the heart, but I don't have any idea what that means. So I guess maybe the very first place to start is, what is something about the heart that you think people should know this, but they don't? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, as far as what people should know about the heart is that uh, most of us die of heart disease. So that's probably, to, to begin with, not, not what we want to hear, but probably the most important thing, at least in Western society, is people die of cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, so by definition, one of us is going to die of that on, on average. By definition, Be you mean 50%? Oh, really? Yeah, over, a little over 50% die of cardiovascular disease. So we hear a lot about lung cancer and breast cancer and, and, uh, and infectious disease, but 
over half of us die of, of heart disease or stroke. Women, men, just how it is. And when you say heart disease, is that encompassing? I, I'm, you're not saying, when you're sitting down with the patient, you're not like, oh, you have heart disease. You're much more specific, right? And you're saying heart disease encompasses a whole variety? That is correct. When we talk about people dying of heart disease, we generally talk about people who have blockage-related issues, heart attack-related issues, things that lead to heart damage and, and make the heart more vulnerable to, uh, to illness and, 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 and eventually to death. Um, that being said, um, heart, the, the, the field of cardiology has been very progressive over the last 20 to 30 years and mortality rates are, are decreasing, uh, uh, because of medications, because of technology, because of lifestyle changes, uh, outlook for patients with cardiovascular disease is much better than it used to be. That doesn't mean we still don't die of it eventually. Um, but people are living to be older. Uh, much older with heart disease from from diagnosis till uh, till death from heart disease or something else and uh, and people's quality of life because of technology and lifestyle changes is is really improved as well and when so you it's, so it's an optimistic outlook absolutely when you started in cardiology was it killing 50 percent of everybody or is this a, a problem that came up and now is regressing well, um, it, it was in Western society. It's been doing that. So, if we, so, so it has been doing that when I started out in cardiology, which is about thirty years ago now, is when I when I first started uh, in practice, following training. So, you know, I, I have uh, I know people that are into the medical field, and uh-huh. they have some level of caring that's just intrinsic in them. And I care for my family and for my close friends, but I have virtually no interest in having uh, the intimate level of knowledge about another person and what makes them tick and or doesn't or what they're sick or or if they're in pain. So when I hear that somebody not only went through medical school, but then spent the next 30 years of their career doing this, I, I have to wonder, did you know the requirement of how much you were going to have to care for other people or at least understand their pain before you went into this, and did that influence your decision as to become a cardiologist? Um, no, I didn't. No, I don't think I did. Um, I, I don't think I did. In fact, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty much brought up by you're, you're probably going to be a physician when you grow up, um, which it was, it was almost, an, it wasn't almost, it was an expectation from my father, um, who, who, you know, was my role model and who I respect more than anybody. Um, but but that's really it, it was an expectation, and so I naively followed along. <laughs> um, and he, he clearly saw something in me that I didn't see in me. Um, but but it, but it's difficult to to predict what what that is going to entail. And I, as it is with anything that you devote your life to, um, not not just this profession, but any profession, it's it's hard to know exactly what it's going to be until you're until you're faced with it. it and it is, it, it can be all encompassing, no, no question about it. And, and it's interesting because I have two, two of my four children are, are going into medicine. One is in a, oh, one, I didn't realize one, that. yeah, one, one, uh, finished medical school a year ago. So she's in her first year of residency in pediatrics and another just started medical school, another daughter. Um, this is her first year of medical school. And so I'm, I'm looking at it from a different perspective, from their perspective now. And, and, and looking back on what I knew or, or didn't know then, and, and it's, it's fascinating. 
as somebody that now has wisdom of hindsight, is there anything you can tell your daughters that will prepare them for the adventure that they're going to go on? Because they don't know, right? They're in, the, they're in their books or maybe they've had a few experiences with patients, but is there anything you can say ahead of time to let them know what's about to happen? Well, I, I look back at, at my training and, and, and things that I listened to or didn't listen to from, from mentors. I remember when I was chief resident listening to uh, Steve LaFrac at Washington University, who, who was head of, our tr- head of the training program that I was part of, a, a wise man, a lo- lovely, compassionate man, um, but brusque at times. So uh, I, 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 he was talking to the incoming interns. So these are, these are people who just graduated from medical school and now they're starting their internship, in this case in, in internal medicine, prior to going on and, and being, becoming internists or primary care physicians or specializing in, in, uh, in branches of internal medicine. And so that was the beginning of a three-year program and then specialty training after that after these people have already graduated from a four-year medical school and after they've gone to a four-year <laughs> college and, and, and are just coming in with... An unimaginable a, amount of education. Right, but, but also completely naive about what's in front of them and scared and anxious about what they're... What, you know, this is the first time they're going to be in charge of, of patients and, and, and you know, more, much more than a medical student. And it's the first time they're um, facing the responsibility of, of dealing with a patient uh, patients' needs and, and, and physical needs and, and sometimes making life and death decisions and such. And so what he said to them was, was you, you guys are the cream of the crop. You know, you have always, you know, from grade school on, you have made straight A's. You've, you've always been considered the, the most brilliant of your class. Everybody knew, you know, who you were. And, and, in order to get here, you've done great in high school. You've gotten to it to gotten into a college where you have excelled. You've gotten to the top of the top in grades. You've gotten to the top of the top in in uh, in the testing that has been required, the MCAT testing and and such to get into medical school. You've graduated from medical school at the top of your class, and now you are in a in a uh, entering a residency program where, um, where, where you will, are expected to excel and all of a sudden we're going to stop grading you, you know, we're done with that. Oh, we're going to stop grading. You. That's right. Everybody's, you've been graded your whole life and you've been always at the top and everyone's always said, Oh, you're great. You're great. And you go, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. And, but, but that stops now. Nobody really cares about that anymore. What do, you, what do you care about? You care about taking. You're going to be. You care about being right about taking care of people, making the right decisions for them. Grades don't matter anymore. They don't. They don't even exist. And whereas up until now, you've been. You've you've been told. You've been defined as having excelled. All yeah, the there's time. a top. There's there's a there's a leaderboard. There's a there's right. a thing and, that you can measure. And you have positive reinforcement on that all the time. That stops right now, and you have to start getting your satisfaction not from other people telling you how you're doing because that's going to stop now. You have to get it from doing the right thing, and by making by by understanding your patients by 
doing what you're supposed to do as far as perceiving what they're telling you by doing the proper examinations and, and ordering the right tests and analyzing them. But the biggest thing is that you have to be, you have to understand that you're not being graded anymore. You're going to be, you're going to have to ha- have your satisfaction come from, from doing the right thing. And, and that's all there is right now. And, and some people can't handle that. Some people need that constant reinforcement of saying, oh, you did great. You're the best and such. That stops now. And you have to do the, you have to get that satisfaction now from, from not just being correct, but by knowing that you've done whatever you can to help that person. What do you suppose happens to a person? I mean, you, you were in that place of excelling and um, if they, if, if they were not prepared for that statement and walked past it, you know, then you get into the real world and you're not being graded in the same way. What what happens psychologically well, to a person? I, well, I, I think it's a change, and, and some people can handle it well, and and, and some people can't. It's a, you know, it, I guess it has to do with security and maturity, and and and, and a lot of things. But uh, I, I think the important part is that you, you have to learn what's important. And, and yes, it was important to excel in order to get to this place. But now that you're at this place, what's important is the outcome uh, and the process that get into that outcome as far as taking care of people. You know, you're describing the concept of uh, transcendence, right? If you reach a level and then if you want to go to some other level, now the rules that got you to this first plateau, they don't they don't apply or they don't apply in the same way. And it, I've been actually thinking a lot about this this concept of, of transcendence lately. And in that, uh, in order to grow, the things that you defined being successful by always have to change, right? Uh, unless you're you're striving for, you know, one ultimate goal. But but I think in order to reach one ultimate goal, you have to have a series of of small goals. As a doctor you're getting better at caring for patients, right? You start this process of transcendence from excelling at the top of your medical school and now you've got to care for people. What are the ways that they can mark, I'm progressing forward, I'm becoming a better doctor? Because the challenge of I'm becoming a better doctor means you have to look at the times when you were not that good of a doctor or you you fell down or you failed in some way. That seems like a very difficult thing to stare down. Well, I, I think there's introspection in any in any growth, um, and I think it's it's as simple as that. Is you have you know you can you have to reflect on your mistakes. You have to reflect on your successes, and there's I think that's that's part of uh, part of growth, whether it's personal growth or professional growth. Do you when you're 30 years into a medical career? Are you still looking back and being like, man, I'm a lot better than I was last year? I mean, or how, how do you how do you do that when you're, you know, clearly have wisdom and experience, and how do you keep measuring it now? Well, I I, I think you part of the process is is you're always measuring it within yourself. Um, you know, part of the medical profession has to do with peer review, whether that's with yourself or formally um, reading medical journals and 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 growing professionally in that way. And, and you look back on things that you used to do that used to be the state of the art, and you know what? No longer They are no longer the state of the art. And in retrospect, we, were, we weren't doing things properly then. And so clearly we're doing things now every day that 
is considered proper in the medical profession, but five years from now it won't be. And so you have to take that into account and be humbled by that. What, what, what is something that when you look back over the last 30 years that you thought you knew about the way the heart works or the way that you should treat hearts that is very, very different now? Nobody would fault you for what it was, but now we think very differently about it. Well, we, we didn't really know the etiology of heart attack and heart damage and life-threatening rhythm problems. Etiology? When, uh, the cause, oh. causes. We didn't really know the causes of heart attacks per se. You know, we thought that people would get it. Everybody has three major arteries within their within their heart, and those arteries supply blood to the heart muscle. And one of those arteries is typically more important than the other two, um, but but each of the three are important, and, and any of the three can can get blockage formation, plaque formation, which if if becomes significant enough can impede blood flow, and then cause a heart attack. And we used to think when I was just starting medical school that that blockages would come from risk factors from heart disease, from people who smoke or have diabetes or high blood pressure or don't exercise and the like, have a family history of heart disease, a lot of other things. Um, and we used to think that people would get a blockage, and okay, they have a, they've developed a 40% blockage over the years because of their lifestyle and such, or and living in Western society and such. Um, and then they get a 50 and a 60, and then it progresses to an 80, and then a 90, and then a 95, and then a 99, and then eventually it blocks up completely, and we have a heart attack. That's what we used to think. Whereas that's what I think right now, exactly. Well, and it, and it makes perfect sense, but but we we don't do things based on perfect sense. We do things based on on what we have found really <laughs> happens scientifically. Okay, no, I'm dying so, to know. So, so what there, is it? There should, there's evidence-based medicine and, and um, physicians, researching physicians. Uh, uh, Eugene Braunwald and some other just greats of cardiology realized that when that the really the cause of a heart attack that is the cause of blockage of a heart artery leading to uh, lack of oxygenation of of the heart is really caused by typically occurs on 40 50 60 percent blockages where that blockage for reasons that are still unclear a little bit of you know a medium-sized blockage will crack and that crack inside that artery will release substances that attract other substances to the blockage, and it attracts cholesterol deposits, it attracts little blood clot forming agents. And then all of a sudden that 40 or 50% blockage that is just cracked and released substances will form a blood clot. And so you go from 40 to 50 to 100% just like that. That would be a pretty big game changer, and that's what a heart attack is. Wow! And, and that's and that's uh, and and that's what happens. And so, treatments were developed aimed at first of all getting rid of that blood clot that forms, so that if somebody comes in at hour zero with a heart attack, then it was it was figured out that that time means heart muscle. So if you can get that. If you can get rid of that blood clot and reestablish blood flow within a matter of minutes or actually within an hour, hour and a half or so, then you're going to have less heart damage than, than if you aren't able to open up that artery. And so treatments were devised aimed at initially dripping blood clot dissolving medication directly into that artery right above the blood clot. So people would put a catheter, a thin tube, in the leg artery, which leads up to the aorta, which leads which is leads up to where these three heart arteries come out, 
and drip blood clot dissolving medication. Just drip, 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 and all of a sudden the blood clot would go bloop and disappear. It would it would have dissolved and flow is reestablished. Okay, and, sounds like problem solved then. Well, problem uh, acute problem improved upon. <laughs> okay, which is important, and 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 that led to improved improved survival of patients and improved quality of life because of decreased heart damage. So that that was fascinating. So that was you know just what didn't exist when I was first training, but as I was training, that that type of um, treatment began to be developed. And then the next part of the treatment was to learn that catheters, after you get that blood clot open, you could put a thin wire across that now incomplete blockage and put a balloon across that wire, blow a deflated balloon, and then open up the balloon and push that blockage away from the middle of the artery to the sides of the artery and reestablish better flow. And then from there, we learned to add um, stenting, little little metallic cylindrical stents that would um, come in through the catheter as well, lay across the artery and then be expanded. And by that, trying to keep with the goal of keeping that artery open at that point. Um, so all those were new things um, that really changed the, the face of cardiology as well. We also used to think that kind of a, a similar but related tangent, we used to think that when people die suddenly, they died of heart attacks, which would make sense. And, in, and indeed, uh, you know, we used to think that, okay, they had a heart attack and um, from decreased blood flow, and, and they died from that. People who die suddenly out in, out in uh, um, you know, on the street or in bed and, um, and such. But we've now realized that most of those people, and this happens about 500,000 times a year in the United States, 400 to 500,000 times a year, where people will die suddenly of heart disease. Um, often unrecognized and often as the initial presentation of heart disease. You know, everybody unfortunately knows of people who died in their 40s or 50s suddenly and, you know, they just didn't wake up. And, and the vast majority of people, of those people who die suddenly, die from, unex, from unexpected heart disease, but they don't die from a heart attack. They die from, from the, the result of having a certain amount of blockage within arteries, which then makes the heart electrical system unstable and people will have a life-threatening heart rhythm problem and die suddenly from that. So they actually haven't had heart damage or heart death or heart attack per se, but they've died because from a, from a life-threatening electrical accident, if you will. Oh my God, I've never um, even heard because of this. Because of that, well, that's called sudden death. And sudden cardiac death is usually from a life-threatening rhythm problem in in the setting of underlying severe often unrealized blockage um, that so as i'm thinking about this what i'm imagining is um it's one thing to be like okay my I, i'm gonna go in and uh, do people do checkups where they say can you check out how much blockage i have in my heart um they do they do and we're probably not doing it enough um and you know cardiologists spend all day talking to people with heart problems um, and, and and it's improving now but now our now preventive imaging is is available and such and so um, I, I, we probably don't spend as much time as we should in people coming to us who don't have heart disease who 
who should be looked at to see whether they could be developing heart disease, again, while knowing 50% of us are going to die of cardiovascular disease. And many of, people, of those people don't know that they have heart disease brewing. So the question that seems uh, obvious to me about one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, but I, th- I think it's actually a relatively personal question, um, is as a doctor and uh, that's looking at people's heart, knowing that, hey, this is the 50% killer, I'm, I'm going to be working with people that, uh, that, uh, that largely a lot of them are going to die somewhat soon. They've come in with a problem. You're one of the very few people in the world that knows something deeply about another person that they don't know yet. You're, you know, you get test results, you read them, you can interpret them on a very deep level, and you have to walk into a room and communicate their odds of survival or uh, almost like a report card on how did you do over your factors you could control and over factors you couldn't control like uh-huh. genetics. Sure. And now I'm about to tell you, you know, where we're going from here, what, what, what your uh, diagnosis is. What, help me understand that experience from the doctor's well, side. Well, well, fortunately, there's lots we can do. And so, so I think it's different than, than uh, if we had had this information available to us 30 years ago but not have the, the resources to do something about it. You know, again, it's, I think it's a very optimistic outlook for, for most of our patients because um, we can make them, we have the technology to make them feel better with medications. We have the, the educational information to help them decrease their risk of heart disease progression by, by teaching them what they should be doing and what they can be doing for themselves. Um, and we have the technology to, to prolong their life by, by life-saving and life-prolonging procedures. So, um, so it's, it's not just like walking into a room and saying, you know, okay, you've got, you've got 10 days to live. You know, it's not like that. Okay. Um, that's exactly what I was – that's what I imagined. That's what I thought that it was. Well, it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't people that, that have end-stage heart disease that, that you have – not much to offer them from a life extending point of view, but even for those people, you have something to offer them as far as philosophically helping them deal with with what they have in front of them. Uh, I think that's certainly part of a physician's job is is uh, you know probably sequentially to help them ex- help them understand what they have to to the best of our knowledge to help them to help them. Um, understand what they can do about it and, and such and how they can improve their their out, their potential um, outcome how, how they can how they can um, improve their survival and improve their quality of life and such and, and when you get to the point where that's no longer possible then helping them deal with with what is ahead um, with their with their impending death and such not that that's always predictable sometimes it's very predictable and very precise but but often it isn't um, we're much better at dealing uh, as doctors at predicting as a group how how people will do than than how an individual will do um, if you have you know we know how a thousand people are going to do who have poor who have a heart that's who have hearts that are working a third of that of a normal individual but we don't don't know how that one individual within that thousand is going to do and 
Yeah, therein lies the problem of statistics. I can tell Absolutely. you, you know, and and everyone that's sitting there is hoping I'm the one in a thousand that this is no big deal. Sure. But you just never know. And it is right. sticking your hand in a, in a bag of marbles. So you mentioned using some philosophy about life and death and helping your patient through that when they're in end stage heart disease which means you must have thought quite a bit about something that most people spend a lot of time trying to avoid thinking about, which is death. And I'm, I'm curious as to somebody that faces this, that has patients, many, many patients, certainly that have survived longer than they thought, but then also patients that have passed away. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, on, on death? I mean, you're around it quite a bit. I, well, might, you must well, have an interesting. Well, well, certainly from a patient perspective, I think my thoughts of death are irrelevant, and I think that's. And I'll be glad to talk to you about those. Um, but I think it's much more important to help somebody else deal with their concerns. Well, I'm so I'm interested death. in hearing about both of these. The first one being interesting because you now. What, what do you mean when you say I have to work through th- their thoughts on death? Well, m- my job isn't to communicate my feelings it's to help them deal with their feelings as far as as far as that goes and 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 it may be that that they don't want to deal with with any of this which is fine but i'm here for them or or i hope to be there for them if if that's something that they want to pursue on a more on a more individual basis or philosophical basis do you feel like you have a fairly solid sense of how someone is going to react to the 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 information that that death is not necessarily imminent but but strongly there now that they that it that what they could have pushed off into the future saying oh that's something you deal with when you're old now is something that's become present are you a fairly good predictor at how people are going to react to this um you know i'm i'm that's a tough question. I'm, I'm, I think, it, again, it's an individual thing. So I, I guess the answer is it, it varies, again, from person to person. And sometimes you, you are and sometimes you're not. But, but that's okay because your, your job isn't to, to be right in that sense of the word. Your, your job is to be available to them. Oh, there you in, go. That's in, right. In, in a way that, that hopefully is helpful to them or, or to not be available if that's how they want to deal with this. Yeah, your prediction model is not altogether that important other than to prepare you for no matter what you have to react. So it doesn't really matter. That's correct. I agree. Okay. Absolutely. And so, you know, what, what uh, this is probably the most personal question you could ask anyone, let alone to be recorded while asking it. What are some of your thoughts on 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 death? What how how what can people learn? from a person that is studying the very organ that we think of as the core of life, the heart, what do you think is important for people to recognize or think about with regards to their impending death that's going to come someday? Well, I, I think I'd probably turn it on you, and I think that, that, that thinking about life is much more important. Okay. Um, because the rest is is the rest, and who knows where we go from here. You know, I... Personally, I think we probably just stop, but uh, but that's irrelevant. Again, I think it's much more important how we live than how we prepare to die. Very interesting. And um, you know, right now I, I don't actually have a fear of death, mm-hmm. but 
when I that that may be in large part because I don't really let myself get to a position to think about it. Mm -hmm. I had a friend I was talking to the other day and we were talking about the practice of meditation. And, um, you know, we've both been experimenting with this. He's had a lot more experience. And he said, well, in the practice that you're using right now, have they have they gone through any meditations on death? And I was instantly like, I don't know. And if they did, why, why, why would I? That would be the last thing. Like, I'm trying to go in the other direction. Uh-huh. And But he was keenly interested in this. And he said he wanted somebody to help him think about these things. And, and really at its core, he was saying, because I want it to help inform how I live my life. And okay, it, that's fair. It, it sounds somewhat like that. Like, I don't. You know, if I grasp an image of death, it seems so foreign to me as to be something that happens to other people as opposed to something that could happen to me. Sure, sure. I, and, that, and that's fair. And I, I think most people are like that. I, I, I often ask my elderly patients, the upper 80s, mid 90s, you know, did you ever think you were going to you were going to be you were going to live to be 88? Did you ever think you were going to live to be 94? And I have almost never had an answer of yes i was prepared for this and, oh. and it's fascinating not none of us really envision ourselves to grow old or to be old but we certainly can't envision ourselves dying either it's just a, that is very interesting it's crazy. Do, you, do you now looking at um how old are you 61 so did did you have a model of of the person you would be at 61 when you were 31? Um, you know, I, I probably did. Interesting. So say yeah. more about that. I probably did. I, you know, I was, uh, you know, I knew I was on the medical track, which means in this case, I knew that as what I wanted to do professionally. And, and I, and I pretty much followed that. I, you know, once I decided that I want to specialize in medicine and then cardiology and such, and have a practice and see patients all, all day. I mean, that's really what I wanted to do. And that's, that's what I've done. From a more personal life, I, you know, have the the uh, honor of meeting the love of my life and in high school and and uh, I didn't realize having, you guys have been together since high school. Oh yeah, she was fifteen, Mary Beth was, and and I was uh, just about turning seventeen when we met. So I was two grades above her in high school, and uh, you know we've had a, an amazing life together with four great children, and, and uh, there you go. So it it's the process of even thinking about me being so I'm 37 uh-huh. and at 21 to think about 37 that would be like an ancient person. I think it does become easier once you get into a seam of life and you start saying I now know at least what my skill set is and the and the route that I want to go so it becomes easier to to picture well, it does, but then all of a sudden you wake up and you're 61 or 81, and that's going to happen tomorrow. That's just that's just how it works, and that's how people describe it. And and just like, you know, you remember what you used to think 37 was. Yeah. Are you kidding? Right. How old that was when you were eight, and you were looking at your uncles or your your your, your parents or something? How old that was, and just how it goes. Click, click, click. Do you um? Mark time in some way. Do you write in a journal or keep you know copious notes or I save all your calendars? I, I do not. So um, I wonder because you know, so you and I have spent quite a bit of time together in just weird hours, and I know at all times 
the phone can ring in your pocket and you you can be talking about someone that clearly that they, they don't call you for fun, right? They're calling you yeah. because something uh-huh. something's going on. Concern. Uh-huh. And that's always led me to wonder because that has to be, I don't know if it's adrenaline for you at this point, but there's got to be some signal that goes off in your brain. Hey, this is an important moment. Um, if if that would be a thing that would mark time in, in, in your life, right? Because I can look back, the, the moments that I remember the most clearly in my life are the ones when it was something important is happening, you've got to pay attention. And it seems like when that phone goes off, something important is happening and you've got to pay attention. Does that mark time for you? Can you, does that? I've n- never really looked at it that way, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite following you. So I guess... Um, We'll go in a different direction. Okay. Um, uh, so, so the, the reason I was asking is about the the if you if you write in a journal is mm-hmm. because I have come to the uh, experience that I don't actually I, I write down every day. I try and write it. I treat it like um, like I'm making my bed, and um, I don't have to write anything profound. I just have to sit down with a pen in my hand and write one sentence down. Uh-huh. And from there, whatever happens, happens. But um, I have trouble going back and looking at it. I, you know, I don't really want to know what I was thinking. Um, and that's gotten me thinking about, um, well, then why do you do it, right? What What's the point of that? And one of the things that I have noticed if I have, you know, peeked back at the stuff, it is that that sentence is usually whatever is the peak moment going on in my life that is the first thing on my mind when I wake up or the first thing that I can force myself to that my monkey brain throws up and says, write this one sentence down. Uh And I realize that a lot of that has to do with there's some explosion going on in my life that I have to deal with. And your life is filled with these tiny explosions, which are, are... this is the most important thing going on. Someone somewhere in the world has a question that it is very important that Alan Sofer pick up the phone okay. and answer that question. And I wondered what that did to your perspective. Well, on- well I, I think I, you, I do think about that or I have thought about that. And, and certainly, you know, some of these are in the in retrospect could could be trivial encounters, but they may not necessarily be trivial encounters at the time. Um, which means that that you, you you as a physician you you hopefully will learn that that when you're talking to the patient then whether it's in the office or on the phone that that has to be the only thing that's going on in the world right right then absolutely you have to have you know your that's the only thing that's important and and then it should be like that with with many relationships. Uh, but certainly on a professional level, that it, you, your focus has to be there, period. Oh, that's interesting. It really, you know, the best relationships you have are the ones that you're either willing or able to dedicate your, your full attention to them. Because if they're talking to you, that is the most important thing going on. Yeah, and it, and it, the only thing. It's got to be the only thing going on right there. Absolutely. Does that inform why? So, you know, the listeners won't know this. And you've been, you know, really open and, and, and talkative. But you and I have been at entire breakfast where there's five people there and you don't say a word you know until the very end you're pleasant you know you smile and say hi but you're very very quiet and you're quiet in meetings and you're quiet when you're out to dinner in the groups that we've been in would you 
I find it to be so interesting how quiet you are. Clearly, I'm on the opposite scale of this. Is this genetic for you? Is this something that you temper in yourself that that you say I'm I want to reserve? I don't I, I don't temper it. I don't I think it's natural for me. I just have always been a better listener than a than a talker. No no question about that. Um, which is interesting because I think that's the most important skill as a physician is to be a listener. No, no question about that. And, and, and you're learning medical school how, how 90% of everything you do is listening. You know, it, it, you know it, it's the testing that you do, the, the high technology that we have, the procedures and such, those are in general confirmatory. Um, and yes, you'll find some surprises, but, uh, but you can learn most things as a physician just by listening to somebody and paying attention to their to the, the signals that they're giving you that they may or may not be meaning to and just hearing what they say. And I guess that, I guess that has inform, informed how I deal with people as well. But I've, but I've never, I've never enjoyed talking for talking's sake. <laughs> and, uh, which is why this is such an atypical thing that I'm doing. Today. Well, I mean, I am, I am over, overjoyed with, uh, how well this conversation is going. Um, and, there's an interesting function that happens when, and I think there's there's two ways to get to this function of, of I'm going to talk about intimacy, right? Like when someone feels comfortable enough to op- open up. And mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of different ways to get many, probably many different ways. And you and I maybe have different uh, ways of, of going about it. In my case, I often make observations and ask people a question that they haven't really thought of before. And if you stick around for the answer, then, then they'll tell you very interesting things. And yours, you're intensely interested. You're, you're, um, but you don't, you don't necessarily have, at least as far as my experience, that many questions, but you stay and you listen. But there becomes a challenge, I think, with a doctor. As an, as an interviewer or a communicator, I can get as intimate and as close with a person as they want to let me. And mm-hmm. But we're going to hit a point where there's no danger of being too intimate, right? Or, I mean, I guess maybe in some obscure situation. But in your case, you have to help someone to open up so that they feel comfortable enough to tell you things that are deeply important to what their case is, to what's going on with them. And yet you can't get that attached to them. Or, or I would imagine if you get attached to people, you, you can't do that dozens of times in a day, then you know, hundreds of times in a week. How do you deal with that balance between having people open up to you, becoming intimate, but not becoming too connected to them? Well, I think that's part of being a human being. I mean, you're obviously you, you forge a connection, um, but you can't let it, you, 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 you can't let it destroy you every, every 20 minutes either, because that doesn't do anybody any good. And, you know, one of the the words that you and I talked about in our emails back and forth setting setting this up was a word that comes. There's there's two books that you have ever recommended for me to read, and one of them came as a function of uh, you visiting Cambodia and um, treating the the refugees that were coming out of that crisis. The name of that book, what, what was that? It was um, uh, it was William Shaw Cross, The Quality of Mercy. The Quality of Mercy. Right. And then uh, just when you came over today. You, you brought a book called Just Mercy. And, and kind of what would you say is an overview of the, what prompted you to bring this, this particular? Uh, of Just Mercy? Yeah. 
Um, Just Mercy is a is a book by Brian Stevenson, who uh, is a is an attorney um, who has really dedicated his life to um, to helping marginalized, you know, the most marginalized citizens we have, which are um, those who are incarcerated and and uh, uh, with death sentences, um, some wrongly convicted and such. But he's really dedicated his life to to helping that uh, those individuals. So, you know, when we bounced back and forth these ideas about, and I said, I want to talk with you about the, the word mercy. And I mentioned to a friend of mine that we were going to have this conversation. And I said, I'm talking to a doctor and we're going to talk about something that I think is central to being a doctor, which is mercy. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I, I didn't really understand why. And he goes, you know, have you ever really thought about what that word mercy means. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it had always been a word that I had grown up with in the Catholic Church and we should have mercy. But I never really understood that there is some component until he brought this up with me. And I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it, that mercy requires that uh, you have compassion for someone, but they don't deserve it. So that's not really the position that that you as a doctor are in as as to judging. Sure. And and and. Brian Stevenson goes into this in, in his book. I mean, there's certainly mercy is compassion and mercy is forgiveness. But part of mercy, I think a central part of mercy as, as it's defined is, is having to do with mercy has to be given by someone in a position of power and authority who has, who can, um, absolve somebody you know who, who can forgive them in such so so there's a there's a relationship there that 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 is an unholy one there you know there, of, of having a, of, of a, someone in a in a position of authority and power giving the mercy and and I, uh, that's uh, that's a relationship that's that's untoward that's yeah, an asymmetry that seems uh, really uncomfortable. A- absolutely, and 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 Stevenson says in his book, he says he, 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 the, the the book is called Just Mercy, not Mercy, and he talks about the difference between mercy and just mercy. Just meaning as in justice. Oh, okay. And and he says that yes, mercy is 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 mo- is is given in, in compassion and forgiveness and. Um, but the just mercy has hopefulness involved. It's got to have hope involved. Um, but, but also it's, it's, uh, it's, it's most productive if it's given to people who are undeserved and unasking. And, and that's a point that he makes. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, but he thinks it's important that, that, uh, that, Mercy in that in that setting is is the highest form of mercy. Some some form of uh, redemption in that case uh, of a person thinking that they they are beneath the level of redemption, so they wouldn't even or dare the, ask, or for they it. wouldn't even ask for it, or or feel deserving of it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So where I think this intersects with some of the things that you've seen in life is if you encounter a patient that you can tell that they were not thinking ahead on you know taking care of themselves and their body and their and their heart health and then they have a problem 
it has to be very difficult to not, well, I don't know, for, for, for an outside observer, I would imagine that it would be very difficult uh, not to be in a position of, of uh, deeply judging, if not altogether oh, coming no, some... No. no, I don't think that's I don't think that's difficult at all. I think it's important. You, you just can't be judgmental because that just doesn't serve them well. But that's not a that's not normal for uh, I, I don't I, I think I think it is an intrinsic thing for humans to be judgmental. And as you grow older, you begin to have other ways of looking at the world but you know look at your reaction there you're like oh no no oh, well, no. well it's because it's it's easy it's just not productive it just would not be and it's usually not productive to be judgmental but certainly in a professional uh, encounter it, it just wouldn't help to be judgmental you know I, I certainly have patients who have had heart attacks and undergone bypass surgery and continue to smoke and it's my not my job to be judgmental about it but it is my job to inform in every single visit talk talk about that to to the point of ad nauseum sometimes and um but but to to judge them on that just again would not help them or, and wouldn't help me either so that would be a deeply valuable i mean therein lies one of the great uh abilities of a human being to to transcend and have better relationships and more empathy and probably more peace would be to not judge are you able to to take those lessons um, or that ability and apply it into into other areas of your life oh I think I, I try to be just like I think everybody does I think people are, are better human beings if they if they do that doesn't mean I do it all the time but I certainly try I find myself being the most judgmental um, when and it takes me a second I have to stop and think about it you know when I find myself being really judgmental I end up saying wait a second what is it about that person that I am afraid is the, that I am? Sure, right? you're that, projecting that, it. In a, that's right. And, sure. and when you have that realization that um, the more fear, I feel yeah. judgmental, the more it is something I'm running away sure. from. So I should be cognizant of it. That, that, that is where judgment becomes helpful. But that goes back to that level of introspection that you sure. have that I you know, probably went 30 some odd years without having <laughs> So in almost a complete non sequitur, and for people that are outside of St. Louis, the, what I'm about to ask about um, probably won't at first seem that relevant to them. But people in St. Louis, this is going to be something they know a lot about. Your family is very involved with the World Food Day. And I'm very interested in hearing first just a small description of what is World Food Day. But then second of all, where did you and your high school sweetheart and your children, how did you guys become so uh, intimately involved with, with this program? Well, World Food Day is a United Nations initiative. It started, I believe, in the late 40s, uh, commemorating just World Food Day, commemorating um, uh, you know, humanity's uh, quest to, to decrease hunger and such around the world. And so um, my son... Donald was involved in in a um, in in uh, a World Food Day commemorate, commemorative um, packaging event, food packaging event, uh, with the Danforth Plant Science Center, uh, and they did that for for uh, for uh, I believe two years. And uh, and to describe the packaging day, you're saying there's all these volunteers. They come in. And they have rice, uh, some soy protein, and right. then some flavoring, and they, they combine it into packages. Package dehydrated meals. That's right. And it is a community event, um, and and 
basically he was involved in this and and uh, uh, do some administrative changes and such. The Danforth Plant Science Center decided not to do it anymore. And and our son, who was uh, probably 13 years old at the time, came to us and uh, actually probably 15-ish or so at the time came to to Mary Beth uh, and me and, and asked if we could do it as a family. Could we take it over? And this was about two months before the event was supposed to take place. <laughs> so we said, sure. Um, and... Burroughs High School was, uh, or Bur- John Burroughs School, the uh, the school where our uh, where our secondary school where our kids attended, uh, was was kind enough to offer us their facility to to do this event, and uh, was kind enough to offer the, the the maintenance people and the plant plant services uh, to help us, uh, and and basically we we did it that year, and we've done it for seven years since then. So it's an annual event. It takes place on one day, and we have about two thousand volunteers from from across the St. Louis community, all kinds of different people. Um, we have we have underserved schools that come and package. We have um, law firms that come and package. We have corporate sponsors that help help take help relieve the the cost burden uh, for for this event and and. Uh, and basically, at, in one-hour shifts, people at tables of eight to ten people uh, stand up and and package food ingredients into into a uh, package that the dehydrated food package that can be that boiled water can be added to and and can serve uh, four to six people. And so, so basically, what we have is we've got. Uh, eight one-hour sessions during the day and then a three-hour session at night which is where high school students come and just for a continuous three hours we've got 22 23 high schools and there's music that, playing that come, and music festive. is blaring it's loud it's just, it's really crazy and they they are just focused on packaging food for the hungry and it, it's a remarkable thing to, to see and so half uh, approximately half the food goes to a school-based feeding program in tanzania africa a particular program where uh, that feeds about a thousand um, um, uh, th- feeds about a thousand children and such daily. And, I didn't and, realize. And, so it goes to a specific place. It's yeah, not just hey, we're shipping it off yeah, to half, people in half of the food goes there to a specific f- place. Specific, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't. Program. I did not know that. Right. Um, and our food basically supports that program. And so for many people, this is their only meal of that day. Um, you know, they come to school, they eat, they haven't eaten before, and they don't eat after they go home. So this is their meal of the day. Wow. And supported by that. And, and, and we've, we've grown to enough. We, we're packaging about 450,000 meals per year now. And that's enough to support this one um, feeding program, in Tan- the school-based feeding program in Tanzania, which is, which is a, a, a wonderful thing. And then the other half of the meals um, that, we, that we package during the, during the day and evening um, or, or go to the St. Louis area to, to families in need through the St. Louis uh, food, food Bank. They help distribute. So your son was, we'll say 15. That meant he maybe had at most three years at school and then he was done. Why have you, why has your family stayed so deeply involved in it? I mean, I, I got a, an email well, from Mary Beth the other day about it. Well, you know, she, she's, you know, the, the, our family's committed. And, and that being said, she does, she does the legwork. I mean, she is... It is a it is a big production that, and she puts a lot of time and energy into it. Um, f- 
from just just logistically getting it so that it's a smooth process for 2,000 people to sit down and, and package meals together to to getting the sponsors to to help underwrite the costs of the of the of the packaging to, to getting the underserved schools transported to the event and uh, to getting the high school students signed up and it's it's a all it's all encompassing but it's 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 a, it's great to see people that uh, that want to give about of their, of their time um, to to a worthy cause which is hunger relief and and uh, it's just very satisfying to to see it come together for the last seven years. The the key interesting thing about that event uh, to me um, outside of the good that it's doing and the number of of uh, people that are fed. Every time I've ever gone, I've been at a table where I knew most of the people there, but I didn't know somebody else. Okay. And so you have this experience of you're becoming a cog in a factory, right? You're, uh-huh. you're like, I'm the rice guy that measures out to make sure it's the exact amount of rice, and I'm the person that puts in soy, and everybody's got their task. And by doing this, you all have, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So sitting across from another person, they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. I think it lowers people's inhibitions and they become much more open to talking about who are they, why are they there, what's going on. Invariably, I have met um, people that are uh, very, very interesting that you wouldn't find otherwise. And there's no way to... There's no reason necessarily to sell that into, hey, why you should come do this program. <laughs> sure, sure. But it is one of those things that I've watched even the most shy people that I know open up and talk with the person across from them and meet somebody. And sure. I can't even imagine how many friendships have probably been born out of that project, sure. which I think is an interesting it, outcome. It is. It, it's a community builder, no, no doubt about it. And in, and in fact, um, it's kind of getting out of hand, but... but Corporations are coming and and coming more and more each year, and and because they, they see it as, as such a great team building experience, just in the corporate world per se. But obviously, on a community basis, that that's the same type of thing. You have like minded people who are trying to do some good, and and uh, and when people are doing that together, they, they open up. I, I think that's an interesting observation. So, speaking of community, uh, you have done something over your lifetime that I think, well, I don't know what the statistics would be, but I can say that among most educated, um, you know, middle, middle, uh, upper middle income people, they, they don't do very often, which is you were born in St. Louis, you met your wife and you went away to school, I think. That's right. Then came back, you did some traveling, but you built the entirety of your life here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about what that was as as you look back on it to say, you know, there's there's trade offs. You're not uh, living in a cosmopolitan life in New York or out in uh, sunny Arizona. But there's something that comes from spending your entire life seeing people that you grew up with now, 62 years later. What 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 was the Why did you make that decision? And what, what do you think was the consequence of it? Oh, I think the decision was easy. It was it was because of family. Uh, certainly wanted to be near my near my uh, near my family, and and as as uh, Mary Beth and I started a family, it by uh, you know her family as well. So it was purely because of family. Um, that that's easy, um, you know. And I, St. Louis, I think, is a wonderful place to 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 raise a family. 
and we were committed to that and and so it's as easy as that it's certainly not because we love the winters here or or uh, and, and such but uh, you know it's purely that I think family is one of the most important things there is and and uh, I think St. Louis is a, is a great place to, to to foster that this isn't true in your case but I'm uh, fond of telling people that the arch is like a magnet and the way that it works is young women leave St. Louis to go to college or to have professional jobs and then eventually they get married and they come back home and they and they get pulled back into that's, St. Louis which is how they get the genetic diversity that's here that's funny that's interesting um Alan this has been an excellent conversation I am so glad that you've been willing to sit down and chat with me and kind of go through my fumblings uh I am uh grateful for our friendship which started over uh, maybe two years ago and mm-hmm. has, has included excellent conversations just like this one. So thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back after I've had a little more practice and I have better questions. My for pleasure. You. Thanks for thanks, having man. me here. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It was with Dr. Alan Sofer, a really interesting guy. And if you did enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll go to wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a five-star review and maybe even make some comments on it. Those kind of comments help the algorithms decide hey, what shows are people listening to and really enjoying? And we want to get that spread out to more people. And we really want to do it before next week because next week's guest is going to be the world-renowned bee expert, Jerry Hayes. Now, if you've never heard of Jerry Hayes before, you can find him on the cover of Wired magazine. He is an extraordinary guy. He has all sorts of crazy stories, like the first time he ever had to go to an autopsy as a result of Africanized bees. And we even talk about things like colony collapse disorder, neonicotinoids, and what people can do if they want to help out the bee populations. Jerry's a really great guy. It's a fascinating interview, and I hope you'll join us next week. Thanks.